So welcome everyone to the Podiatry Systems and Course Health Collaboration, Challenges and Solutions with Using Evidence in Healthcare. My name is Alex Murray. I'm a podiatrist and co-director of Podiatry Systems, as well as an education and communication partner with Course Health. And I'm really excited to be with you today with some of the wonderful people from Course Health to discuss with you how we can go about applying evidence into our clinical practice and present some of the challenges and solutions um, to, to doing so. Uh, so Cause Health, uh, which is abbreviation for, for Causation, Complexity and Evidence in Health Science, is a research group based in Norway, whose mission involves changing the way that we practice evidence-based medicine by helping us better understand causation research. This is understanding exactly how and why things occur, which in turn will help us improve our research method, methods, but most importantly, how we apply evidence to the individual patient who's right in front of us. So I, I first became aware of, of Course Health a couple of years ago when I was really starting to, to question how I can best improve my practice uh, using evidence. And I kept running into problems with, with how I apply it, sort of textbooks and research not matching the patients I saw in the clinic, studies showing little benefit despite my personal and, and, and colleagues' experience of success with those treatment methods or modalities. Patients not getting better despite following the evidence exactly. And so it became a really sort of confusing time. And the work done by Cause Health, so understanding complexity and causation has helped me tremendously when navigating how I can apply the evidence into my clinical practice. So I'm really, really excited to be with here with the, um, some of the researchers and contributors to the Cause Health project um, to present to you exactly the, the, the way that they approach evidence-based medicine or evidence-based healthcare and how we can all get better at, at applying it to, to patients, especially those unique in individual patients. So I've got uh, some of our recurring or what would be our recurring guests over some of these uh, interviews, uh, Dr. Dr. Rani Lilanyam, uh, Professor Roger Carey and Miss Christine Price. Um, as a, as a sort of brief introduction, I'll get them to talk about themselves a little bit more. Um, uh, Dr. Rani Lanyam is a director of Course Health, is an applied philosopher by training, and is currently works at the um, NMB uh, University in Oz, Norway. Professor Roger Carey is a physiotherapist and associate, associate professor at University of Nottingham and one of the principal investigators with Course Health. And Christine Price is a patient advocate based in the in England, UK is also a principal investigator with Course Health. But outside of her research, she's uh, developing resources and tools to support people who are suffering from persistent pain and as well as their healthcare providers. So I'd like to say welcome, welcome everyone. Thanks for, for joining me. Hello. Thank you. Thank so I'll pass to you, to you, Rani, just to start us off. Can you give us a, a little bit of uh, information about yourself and, and uh, how you came to, to Course Health? Yes, I'm a philosopher at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. And uh, before I started COSELF, I worked on uh, causation and what is causation. And uh, I developed the theory uh, together with my colleague, Stephen Mumford. And uh, through him, I met Roger Carey, who uh, actually tipped us that uh, it could be really useful and valuable to take uh, the work that we did on uh, causation and take it into uh, the medical field. Brilliant. So that, that throws it straight to for you, Roger. What, what's, what's your sort of story and, and background and, and, and uh, involvement with Cause Health? Um, 
Well, as as you said, I'm a physiotherapist by trade, um, and I I worked as a physiotherapist clinically. I was involved in research. We were a, a center for a multi-center randomized controlled trial for a while where I worked and had this background of experience and noticed similar things to what you've already said Alex about about that application of, of research and then when I started um, teaching at the University of Nottingham so my side of the story is it was actually meeting Ronnie and Stephen Mumford that, that that tipped me because I was I was sort of curious and, and looking for for some sort of answers about the application of population level evidence in, into clinical practice. And it was conversations um, with, with Ronnie and Stephen that in those early days that things really started to, to I wouldn't say make, make sense immediately. I don't, I don't think things make sense now still, you know, we've got still a lot of um, work to do, but, uh, it was certain the vision suddenly became a lot clearer about where where we could go with this and that was so Stephen was my PhD supervisor and Ronnie was at, at Nottingham at that at that time and it it just um you know one of these critical incidents life-changing moments when when things when things come together and uh Ro Ronnie's thoughts on dispositionalism and and the world of of um causation suddenly put all that background into the perspective and pro provided a pathway um, of where to, of where to go um, so yeah i think that's something to to really highlight with with the background for this project is it was very much based on uh, a clinical background where we were you were encountering these sort of errors and problems and it was something that was obviously happening you know, or you're noticing for quite some time and how this has all come about is directly trying to um, identify and not exactly fix, but provide, you know, some, some building blocks and some solutions over time to address these problems. And I think that's important to highlight because a lot of the time when we start to talk about these more theoretical ideas of how we approach evidence, um, a lot of people are very wary of, of research, pure researchers and people who aren't connected to the real world when really this project started from the real world and the real problems that we're facing. And, and that was always been a, been a grounding. Yeah, that, absolutely. And the, the only other thing I, I would say at this stage is, is the idea that um, this is about trying trying to provide the best evidence for, for, for patient care. Um, rather than, I'm, I'm, I guess some people misinterpret some of the work we're doing about it's, it's sort of anti-evidence and anti-science. And of course, it's not at all. This is this is pro-evidence, pro-science. It's a philosophy, of, in my mind, it's a philosophy of science project. And it's trying to find the best, most applicable evidence to make the best, most applicable evidence-based decisions for the unique patient which is which is essentially all all patients all humans so um that that's another sort of good point to to sort of bring up as well because often when we talk about these sort of issue uh, issues that that affect unique patients um or a specific patient or a specific sort of population um we focus it sort of gets separated from everyone else a unique patient could often mean people with we see this in the pain science uh, or pain understanding pain physio physiology field where we focus on well that's just for persistent people with persistent pain or this is how it works for this specific patient when really 
every single patient is unique and then every single patient deserves to be treated as as a as an individual rather than as a um rather than as a an average or or or, or um as, as an every both person um rani did you have something to add yeah i just wanted to say that uh what is interesting with co-self is that it starts from a very theoretical uh framework and we didn't expect that people from, you know, people who were clinicians, that they would be so much on board with the ideas. And so that was the first surprise for me. And the second surprise was when uh, I met Chris and she said, you shouldn't just be talking to clinicians and medical researchers. We are a bunch of people who want to know. I would want to know about this framework because it's useful for me. And that just uh, that just turned everything around for me. I was uh, I was amazed what directions we could go in. So that's why we've been working more together since then. Well, that, that's that's a really good good segue then for to you, Christine, in terms of your background and and how you became involved. So so yeah, um, I'm a person living with persistent pain. So I've lived with pain for twelve years following a manual handling accident. Um, I have sciatica, mainly neuropathic pain. Um, to start with, I was in quite a bad way. Um, I, I must have had 20 or 30 clinicians. So I have a great experience of, of healthcare over, over these last 12 years. Um, but for the first four years of my treatment, I was treated in a very routine way as an average patient completely. Uh, and then I had a physiotherapist called Matt Lowe, who is also part of Course Health and who introduced me to, to the work of Course Health, who started to treat me as a unique patient, like, like Roger says, everyone is a unique patient. That's what I needed to be treated as. And I just found that the, the ideas about dispositionalism, causation and everything else um, just helped me understand my own condition and through that understanding, I can basically self-manage my condition better and basically um, live a better life with, with persistent pain. And, and yeah, I was very grateful to Cause Health for being part of that journey for me and helping me, helping me live a good life despite the fact that I happen to have persistent pain. Yeah, that's it's it's one of the the things that I think cause health is really leading the way on is, is involving everyone in the, who, who is involved in, in a healthcare encounter in this sort of process of, and how we can improve it from all aspects. So yeah, having patients involved, it's, it's something that's becoming thankfully more common because if we're, if we're treating patients, if we're treating people, um, they deserve a say and that or they, and, and their feedback as well. Um, so we're seeing a lot more conferences, but I think Cause Health has has particularly led the way on that one. And I think as as well from what you're saying, the way the work that they're doing has had incredibly large amounts of relevance to you. So mm -hmm. as as a uh, anecdotal evidence to someone that will always say, I think it's a really good um, it's a really good sign that we're they're actually seeing that there's some really good clinical applicability and it's leading to to particularly good outcomes. Yeah, indeed. And, and the ideas, of course, help. They're really important for clinicians, but actually they're really important to, to get down to, to patients themselves as, as well.
yeah, um, exactly, exactly what you said. Um, yeah. Helping with self-management. Roger? Yeah, just to pick up on the, 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 the patient involve, involvement again. And, and uh, again, you know, a couple of things. We don't need to go into things too much, but uh, Christine referred to herself as a, a person living with persistent pain as, as opposed to a, a patient. And again, we, we are more person-centered than, than patient-centered. And, and there's a sort of a bit of a narrative behind that as well. So, you know, this is just about people and humans. But the idea of involving um, patient service users, persons, what, whatever you would like to call them right now, in research is, is not necessarily unique because we, we have involved patients in, in research before, but I think the big difference here is patients are normally involved like in the, for, for example, the development of a trial. So patients will be um, consulted with to see um, if the trial design is going in the right direction and, and if it relates to them in various ways. But the, the difference here's with cause health. We're involving people like Christine and people who are living with with pain and and other disabilities, not not just to check if the if the if the design of a of a of a, a research method is okay with them, but actually in the development of the understanding of what sort of what sort of evidence and what sort of research would be applicable to the to them. So, and I think that. That's a that's a critical difference, you know, because we're still searching for what is the best sort of evidence and what's the best sort of way to gain that evidence, and 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 people are coming in at that level rather than just saying, "Oh, we run randomised control trials. We just want to check if it's okay with you before we sort of, you know, do what we were going to do anyway." Um, so you know, you know, the, this is genuine, real, org organic uh, involvement of 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 everybody. I think on on that note, we can sort of jump jump straight into to talking about you know the cause health work and 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 what what you're doing uh, today. We're going to be discussing more so the challenges setting setting the scene, the challenges of of evidence based medicine and, and and the issues that 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 we're having, and and specifically as well how that impacts our care um, for our, for our patients. Um, I think we'll start start with you, Rani. In 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 your book, so I think that's probably the, the important thing to highlight is that that you guys have a book. It's open access, uh, cause, uh, causality and complexity for, for the unique patient. We'll, we'll have a link to the book, which everyone can download um, for free. Um, but in this book, you, you talk about um, how evidence currently uses Hume's theory or a Humean approach. Can you explain what this is? and why you've identified it as a major issue when we're trying to treat an individual person? Yeah, I can say a bit about that because uh, what we see is that there is a, a clear connection between the preferred methods uh, and the preferred types of evidence that we're looking for when we want to see if a treatment works. So in evidence-based medicine, it's uh, really important that we use uh, statistical data, for instance. So if a treatment seems to work for many people uh, instead of just a few, for instance, then that would count as strong uh, evidence. And, and this comes from uh, what you said, a Humean conception of, of causation, which is, so David Hume, uh, he's a philosopher who lived in the 1700s and uh, he was presenting 
a theory of causation based on a particular perspective that says that the only thing we can trust as evidence or knowledge is what we can observe directly. So it means that you need a lot of observation data uh, in order to find out what causes what. And he says we should look for patterns of regularity. So when something regularly happens, so you try to do something many times and you see the same kind of outcome, for instance, when on the billiard ball table, so you hit the billiard ball, it rolls, it hits another billiard ball, and then the second ball starts rolling. And you would say, he thinks this is a perfect instance of cause and effect relationship, because why did the second ball start to roll? Well, because it was hit by the first one. So the first ball causes the second to roll. And he says, yeah, if we if we look at the billiard ball table, of course, some people will say that it's it's forces doing the work, but you cannot see the forces. They are not there to observe. You cannot actually observe what is making causation happening. So he says, let's forget about that. Causation is just the type of, of correlation. It's a perfect correlation where one thing happens before the other and what happens first is the cause and what happens after is the effect. And, and of course, it has to be the same time and same place. It cannot be that you hit the billiard ball in one, on one table and on another table, another ball starts rolling. That wouldn't count as cause and effect. And we say this is, a, this is an empiricist point of view, which means that empirical data is what we mainly look at. And in evidence-based medicine, the very highest form of evidence that we have is the randomized controlled trials. And what you have there is you have a kind of difference. You see that the cause is the kind of thing that makes a difference to the effect. But the kind of difference it makes is a statistical one. Because you might say, well, if you hadn't hit, if the first ball hadn't hit the second, the second wouldn't have started rolling. But how do you test that? You cannot go back in time and reverse <laughs> and go back to when it didn't happen. So that's the same if you give someone a treatment. So for instance, if I have a headache and I take a paracetamol and the headache goes away, I want to say that it only worked if it made a difference. So for instance, from a human perspective, you would say, if I hadn't taken the paracetamol, the headaches shouldn't have gone away. But how do I know that? So what you do in randomized control trial is that you, instead of having me and reversing in time, <laughs> you have a bunch of people getting the paracetamols against their headaches, and then some people not getting the paracetamol. And then more often, the headaches should disappear uh, when you get the paracetamol, if it works. So what you're actually looking at is um, a more sophisticated correlation where you um, compare two types of observation data. And what was really interesting when I met Roger Carey is that he said, yeah, but when we look at whether something works, surely we are interested in what happened in those people who got the treatment. If we forgot to give a placebo to the test group or we forgot to include the test group, surely it still worked for the people who got it. If it actually works, it cannot be that causation itself is a comparison between two groups. And that's how I came to realize that, okay, yeah, definitely RCTs, randomized controlled trials, is an extreme um, case of a difference-making concept of causation. But normally in philosophy, 
when we say that causes make a difference, we want it to make a difference here and now in this case. But how on earth do we test it? So N01 studies where you give the kind of same or different treatments to the same patient, maybe that's the closest we get to see if something makes a difference. But for a philosopher, you would have to go to the closest possible world where you didn't get the treatment and see what happened there, which of course is not something you can do in practice. Mm. So I'm, I'm hearing that there's a, there's, the ten, there's a tension there. So we've got, going back to your paracetamol example, we've got, you know, people with two, you know, two sets of groups of people with headaches. One of them's given a medication, one's that one of them's not. And we're sort of seeing what the comparison is, but what we're not getting from that is the information of how it works. And then specifically, when we know how it works, we can apply it to individual patients and saying, is your headache going to go away? Does it need the paracetamol or is your headache one of these ones that will, that will go away? Understanding the mechanisms is an important factor, which is not included in this human approach, the way that we do RCTs. And, and if I'm understanding from, from what you've written in the book as well, is that even an RCT, when we strip away a lot of this sort of context, so we, we, we have inclusion and exclusion criteria, we have... Um, these essentially controlled circumstances, we're losing a lot of the, the things that would help that, that unique person. Yeah, because in, in, an, uh, in an RCT and in a lot of these uh, types of studies, you can only test one thing at a time because if something is complex, let's say you took a paracetamol and you did some yoga exercises, you wouldn't know which of them did the causal work or if both did the causal work. So you have to like separate and isolate. And that's how the randomization is, is supposed to work. It's supposed to kind of isolate out the one thing that should have made the difference. But, but of course, within any kind of uh, study, there will be a whole bunch of individual variations and also variations uh, in how well it worked. But the only thing we're actually checking is the intervention and the effect. So what we're saying is that if we want to understand how something works, we should look at also the cases where it didn't work well and see, okay, so what was actually going on in this case? Because if it turns out that some few people, um, they have different types of properties that make them interact in a different way with the treatment, then that would actually tell us something about what Hume didn't think we should care about, namely the causal mechanism. So what's underlying and explaining what's going on on the surface. But he just said, no, look, it's only the thing going on on the surface that we can care about. And this is what, because that's the only thing that is evidence. Everything else is speculation. Yeah, it's that so focus on... on you can only you can only observe or what you can only observe what you observe or you can only take into account what you can see and i guess i think you know from a from a podiatry perspective we we do see this all the time in our research there's i always think about the studies where we go okay here's a, a foot orthoses that we can provide to to patients with with heel pain for example um, and here's a whole control group where we're going to do exercises or we're going to do nothing and I guess probably the, the big thing that you're pointing out is that the people get lost in the data because really what we're getting is an output is the averages. It's this repeatability that's important that you repeatedly see over and over that. So for the Billards example, you hit the ball, the ball moves. So for, for uh, 
for uh, the patients involved in these studies, they get averaged out as did this work, did this not work, and their individual variation gets lost. And then we end up with results that are sort of, you know, saying that, oh, you know, foot orthosis might work in 50% of patients, but then we're then lost what 50% and to how much for each individual person. So I sort of see that as a, as a fundamental difficulty in applying evidence-based medicine, because all I've got is evidence saying that it's a coin flip for me, whether someone will get better or not. And I'm like, great, that's, that's not good. Um, that's not good odds for me. Um, but I've got no guidance on to select who might be the best person to give this treatment to, because I'm not, we haven't, you know, um, figured out what we can, how we can identify that. And it wouldn't be a problem if it was just like, okay, this is going to work for 50% and the rest of you nothing. Uh, because what's actually happening is that a treatment can be really good for someone, but harmful for, for others. And that's what we know also about side effects. So uh, you're actually risking hurting the ones that you're not helping. Mm. There is a benefit to this repeatability though, like, because if we're going to test, if we're going to test things, we want to be testing it over and over. And this is kind of the basis of the R of the RCT is that if we just looked at every single person as an individual patient, we wouldn't be getting really anywhere with with science in, in a certain way or understanding. Where is that? Do we have a line in terms of the, you know, re respecting repeatability, but also respecting individuals and, and that individual variation and also considering that that in science, we can only test so much and we can only go to the, so many degrees in terms of how in depth we, we do our research. <clears throat> yeah, well, yeah, I, I can, I can um, respond to that um, in saying, yeah, yeah, I agree. And in the, in the sort of cause health framework, we, we, we look to a variety of methods and methodologies um, and try and work out what is what is the valuable thing about them and ultimately uh, i guess we're working towards this idea of of you know evidential pluralism where uh, we want lots of different methods to give us information and we're looking for for consistency in that information so we we would want um the outcomes of a of an rct to tell us something and we would want that to match what we also find in say laboratory studies or mechanistic studies or ultimately of course with with the characteristics of, of, a, of a particular patient and we want all those things to align and there's some you know administrative value in in knowing what happens to large groups of people when you do and, and don't do things but it, it still doesn't get to to the essence of what what causation is and what can help beyond that 50% that 50 of, of, of people. Um, it's a snapshot of what is happening at a particular time in a particular sample of, of, of people. And it tells us something, but it, 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 we seem to be satisfied with that at this, at this point of time. And I don't think we should be satisfied with, with that. And like you say, you know, you, you might say that science has limits or there's resource limits to, to what we can do with science and everything. And, and that, that, that is obviously a, um, a real thing, but it shouldn't stop us working towards what we can continue to try and find out. Otherwise, the whole 
otherwise science just stops. I mean, is this the end of science, RCTs? And I'm not, I'm not convinced it is. The, the other thing about the 50% thing, I mean, there are, of course, there's advances with, with trial design and what we can do with data. And, you know, subgrouping is becoming much more of a, a bit a, a bigger thing uh, but but the the interesting thing about when, once you do start sub, subgrouping in in trials to see which people are benefiting and which aren't um it's the, the main thing we're finding with that is that the, the subgrouping just leads to another subgroup to another subgroup to another subgroup and you keep you just keep subgrouping because you still find variation within that subgroup. And so you go down the level and there's still variation. And you, you know, particularly in something like non-specific low back pain, you can subgroup away until you, you get down to the N equals one level. And that is that is the subgroup where there is then no variation. You, you add one more person and there's variation. So, um, you know, there ben there's benefits like that of, of looking at actually what, what, what does happen in all this, if I study a large group of people, what is happening? Um... Yes, I, I think what the seizing on that idea of evidential pluralism, it's it's really identifying that different methods gives different types of information that we can utilize, and that really what we need is multiple different designs. And that might be, you know, if we look at that hierarchy, RCT was always at the top because it had the less, the least amount of bias that comes in, but it restricts that data to a population only level so having multiple studies of multiple different designs which might be more prone to bias in terms of the way that we we uh, observe the the differences or the way that we, we we design the trial they can actually be really helpful though in, in identifying that variation and how we actually approach things which is which is quite different from the way that we're, we're often taught evidence-based medicine where it's a case of gold standard rct systematic review uh, or, or nothing. Everything else doesn't matter as much. So, so can I can I just jump in there from a, a patient perspective? Mm. So I I'm no doubt one of those those patients would, would be in the wrong fifty percent. So the RCT trials. Um, well, let's face it, nobody will do an RCT trial with me because I've had back surgery or because of this or because of that. And, you know, my, my condition is complex. I am complex. I have other comorbid conditions. I live in the real world. Um, the RCTs don't, don't actually look at me as a person in, the, in my environment. They just might look at an aspect of my neuropathic pain or something. Um, and, you know, as a patient, I want all that evidence to be taken into account. So I want RCTs to happen and other evidence to happen. But most importantly, I want my evidence to be taken into account, my narrative, um, everything that, that is about me to be mixed into those clinical judgments. Um, so, so, yeah, and the, just picking up on a, another point that Ronnie said, that it can be harmful um, to be in that other 50%. So, you know, it's easy to think of if you're giving somebody a medication that it's easy to think that you can actually do harm. But I had four years of what I call routine treatment that I'm sure followed um, 
evidence in its conventional sense RCTs. And that did me harm in a different way. That delayed my recovery for four years because it didn't work for me. I wasn't an average patient. Um, so, so yeah, I just wanted to put in that that sort of mm. patient point of view from that. Well, I think what you've what you've highlighted is an incredible, incredibly important point, which is that when we're considering evidential pluralism and that evidence for causation or how things actually work can come from many different sources. The patient is an important source of that information. It's the person who's living with that condition who's telling you, if I do X, this is the outcome. If I do Y, this is the outcome. You know, if you've given me, you know, Z treatment and the outcome, this is the outcome. And we often as clinicians will look at that as purely anecdotal. We're taught to, to look at that as anecdotal information that realistically we're supposed to look at this RCT. We're supposed to look at this evidence and say, this is how it works. This is how it functions. And that's the, the most uh, important thing or the most um, reliable bit of evidence out there because we've had this repeatability. We've seen it in so many patients go this way, but we're not actually seeing in an RCT the mechanism of how that actually occurred. We're not going back in time and as Rani said, and, and, and understanding that as a, what actually happened there. And when we then have you providing the, that information that, that goes counter, essentially counter to that or tries to, to help shape the, the, you know, what you're trying to tell us about the variations that you're experiencing, we kind of push that away when really we should be trying to help use all that information to make sense. We've got RCTs, we've potentially got case studies, we've got the patient in front of us, we've got all this information. And I guess that's the, the thing. If, if I'm treating, let's say, you know, as a patient, as a person who comes in with heel pain and I'm treating and I'm saying we can provide a, a photophosis or not, we can always go into that with the case of, well, we can try it. And just because an RCT said it should or shouldn't work, we take into account what the patient says and says, well, this did work for me, this didn't work for me, that's equally as valid. And, and I guess the, the other point that I'd quite like to make is that um, clinicians can learn from what's happened in the past. So, so I had, for example, four physiotherapists in, in the first four years of, of my treatment. And the first physiotherapist followed guidelines and followed RCTs and did a particular type of treatment and it didn't really work. And then guess what? The next clin uh, clinician did exactly the same and it didn't really work because they were, you know, taking a, a fresh look at it. And then guess what? The next clinician did exactly the same. And it wasn't until somebody actually looked at how I fitted in the picture and, and helped me understand the evidence and helped and, and just talked to me that we could work out a way forward together. So I think that's important to do. Yeah, I think Rani, you had you had something to add about you know failures and and, and learning. From yeah, because if if you go for this human uh, regularity point of view, then yeah, the what we see with Chris is interesting because we can count how many people did get this exact response from this type of treatment that we didn't expect, and then you can see. Is this many enough people to stop doing it, or if it's a if it's a pill, should we put it on the label that this might be a side effect, or you know you you want to know things like numbers needed to treat, 
numbers needed to harm, uh, but but mainly you're just interested in the numbers. But uh, for instance, Uppsala Monitoring Center for Drug Safety, when they are looking at cases of harm, uh, one thing that they really want to do, but which is not so easy to do, uh, is to look at the patient narratives and see in the details what actually happened to this particular person so that they can learn something. Because if you cannot learn something from the failure cases, all you get is that, oh, yeah, okay, so maybe there are some people like Chris, but they are so few, so the chance that it's you, it's so little, it's so small, so we just give you the standard treatment anyway, because that's what is the ethically right thing to do. But if you assume that everyone is different and everyone has different sets of properties that interact with the treatment in different ways, uh, then the most ethical thing to do is to find out what is best for them and to adapt the treatment to them. But then you also need to understand uh, causal mechanisms, like how does this work? And you need your clinical expertise and you need everything that you have in your education. But in the med in this uh, evidence-based framework, it seems that you don't need any of the things you learned because all you need to know is in the data. So the data will tell you what's the best thing to do for which population. Mm. So I'm going to share a image. So included in all of the um, the uh, there's this all, all the information all of these interviews that we're providing I'm also going to be sort of having these lectures on on complexity um, and discussing sort of what it is and how it can help our treatments and I think this sort of points to this was a study um, of the acute sensory motor responses to heavy isometrics um, uh, isometric holds for people with Achilles tendinopathy and I think this sort of speaks exactly to, to that in terms of the averaging um, that we see, uh, the fact so we, we, we lose the individuals and the variations in studies. We um, also don't take into account positives and failures or, or, or that those other bits of information. We just focus on what did it do on, av on average and we're not looking at the individuals. And, and what we sort of see um, from, this, from these two graphs is that we've got this line which is the average. Um, so out of all of these individual cases, so this is a study as well that would have been considered that um, uh, that powerful because it's only got, you know, eight, maybe 10 participants, but we've got this that line of averages. So what we're seeing is heavy isometrics. Um, so holding in a plantar flex position for I think about 45 seconds, I said, um, actually increases people's pain. And we're seeing some people that that do have an increase in pain, but we're also seeing the fact that there are some people who had pain that either stayed the same or actually decreased. So in this sort of whole process of we're just observing things, what we can see, which is the response, and then we're repeating that over and over and then collating all that information, we've actually missed all of these individual responses. And we can see actually from here when we talk about change, all of these individual responses, and then this was the average. So we've got this wide variation, and and the the average doesn't doesn't tell us that. I guess from from your perspective, Roger, this is kind of what what Cause Health is trying to identify as, as a challenge and trying to address when we're when we're dealing with unique patients, not just relying on um, averaged or large scale data. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean. 
again, you know, the other side of the early argument towards um, prioritizing methods like randomized control trials and systematic reviews of randomized control trials was about the um, e efficiency and cost efficiency. And there's this idea of the utilitarianism and actually, uh, if it if it's better, you know, fifty one percent of the population respond to it, then it's you know, given our limited resources we have, uh, that it serves the, the 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 majority. But actually, you know, the average isn't always the ma the majority as well. Like you know, your graphs just just show that there was for the um the range of responses from from each individual not, not, none of them actually match match the average and you know 30 years uh, plus of of um putting all our priority on on rcts and population level evidence or well well controlled studies is um i i don't think anybody's saying that the model's completely broken or it's been a disaster or a failure it's not at all it's been it's been a huge development in the way we understand medicine and and, and healthcare but we are seeing issues more and more so like, like this uh, it's exposing complexity and it's exposing variation and it's so so what do we do do we just carry on bashing away at the same with the same methods we've learned we've learned a lot by exploring that data like you've just demonstrated but it's now so 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 what would do, do we do? Because actually the medium and long-term efficiency and cost, cost effectiveness of, of this is starting to show that, um, you know, by ignoring that complexity and variation and carrying on applying the average, applying the average is, is, is having negative effects in, in, in medium and long-term cost effectiveness as well, because huge amounts of the population are are receiving not the best treatment for them hmm. um so that that short term you know the archie cochran in the 1970s archie cochran wrote that that one the wonderful little book about effectiveness and efficiency and, and proposing that the trials were the answer to to both effectiveness and efficiency and absolutely in that in that stage there were some short-term gains uh, therapeutically and financially by doing this but we're learning now in the medium and long term that there aren't those gains there and we are missing we're missing huge parts of the population and, and not having the best the best treatment they could have and you know again sorry to keep pointing back to christine and we have been we've used you know but christine's story is is just so insightful and it's and it's not it's not a, a standalone story, you know, lots of patients are telling the same thing. Um, they're not responding to the evidence-based treatment. And it's, there's little surprise why that is because Christine could be anywhere on that, on that graph there, we, 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 we don't know. So it's, she may have responded to the first physiotherapist and in which case we'd say, yes, well, isn't evidence-based uh, guidelines for, for low back pain great because they, they work, but, but that would have been just as random as, as a not responding. But um, the model would say, well, Christine's a non-responder. So, that's, you know, that's life, you know, on average, it sort of works. But that's not that's not good enough. That's not good mm. enough for, for, for modern science and it's not good enough for modern healthcare. 
So I'm hearing that, that RCTs, like you said, evidential pluralism, RCTs have their place and they've been incredibly helpful. I mean, if we go back to a paracetamol example, I mean, paracetamol's everywhere. It's a really effective treatment for, for many conditions, pain, fevers, and in RCTs, we've been identifying that consistently it has a significant positive benefit. And that's probably a good uh, example of RCTs telling us great things, you know, it's it all being helpful in advances. But what we're identifying, and I think this happens a lot more in, in musculoskeletal medicine, sports injuries, pain, we're seeing that, that RCTs are, are helping us only so far. You know, we have these guidelines which are based on RCTs that are telling us this is the things that, that um, that you should be doing as the first line treatment. But exactly what Christine has said, that after that first, first physiotherapist provided that first treatment, we should have been questioning, okay, are we one of these non-responders? And when we're thinking about um, our patients and we're thinking about people that come to see us, are we really happy with a 50 to 60% success rate? Um, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not really good from healthcare. And so we have all of these other methods um, that can help us understand and put the pieces together, which might mean looking at more individual cases like the graph showed, potentially drilling down on these individuals, identifying what you know variations may have uh, assisted and or changed that outcome to then add to that. And we can then use that to understand the mechanism and start to apply it and, and, and look into RCTs with that, with that better sort of frame or information. Christine, I'm thinking about, you know, Roger was talking about a lot of variation um, in individuals and how that impacts that or can impact their response. And that's often missed in, uh, especially, you know, a lot of research methodologies, especially RCTs. Um, what's, what's been your experience of terms of your variation response and, and also what are your thoughts on what RCTs can't um, or strip out. So you've already said yourself with the exclusion criteria, but other factors as well, I'm thinking psychological or sociological factors. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, I've, I've talked to a couple of people, researchers who are setting up research um, into sciatica or back pain or, or whatever. And I'm just really aware that if I became part of a research study, they would just look at one individual part of my sciatic condition. Um, and, but that's not who I am. So my, my experience of pain is, is affected by all sorts of things. So it's affected by who I am, what I do, um, my emotions and everything else. Um, and all of that, it, well, it can't be studied, can it? Because I am so different from somebody else. And in an RCT, you're drilling down to one particular aspect of somebody's condition or one particular aspect of, of somebody's life if it, if it wasn't um, to do with a, a healthcare. Um, but, but if you only looked at, say, the fact that I've lost my my ankle reflex, well, what's that going to tell you about how I live with my condition and how I need to be supported to live in the real world? I, I always say that 
the time I spend with a, a clinician is an absolute fraction of my life. Um, and, you know, physically, you know, let's take the ankle jerk. Physically, you know, maybe an RCT might actually say, well, you can improve this ankle jerk by doing this exercise or this exercise or, or whatever. I don't think you can, but, but whatever. Hmm. But that's, that's a fraction of what I am dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis with my whole sciatic condition. Um, I'm not sure whether I'm making any sense, but but as a person living in the real world, I know that workplace stress has an impact on my condition. The fact that, you know, I live in a family and, you know, my husband will carry the, the bin out for me and I don't have to lift and carry makes a difference to my pain condition. If I lived um, in a different environment and I was living on my own, then different aspects of that life would impact on my condition. You know, I'm, I'm not financially constrained that much. So I can, I can buy things that will help me live with my condition and other people can't. So there's much bigger picture of, of my condition than gets studied in an RCT. And I need the clinicians to look at that big picture, help me understand the evidence from the RCTs and obviously the, the clinicians to use that evidence from the RCTs, but to mix it with everything else about me and to use their clinical judgment. And for my first four years of clinical care, that just wasn't happening. I guess what, what I think you're making complete sense. What you're highlighting is that a lot of the evidence drills down and this is that goes down to that. If we can observe um, what, what is occurring over and over and over again, that repeatability, the only way we can do that is if we strip all this other context and variation out. And so for, for on a human level, uh, what you've identified is a lot of the studies will put a magnifying glass on one part of the condition, but that that's also a con part of the condition that can be studied repetitively amongst lots of people. If you're trying to line people up and say, what is work stress or how does it impact sciatica? That's an incredibly fraught study because how do you rate work stress? How do you compare different jobs? How do you understand what's good stress, bad stress, or if, if that's even a statement that you can make. It's in, incredibly complicated and it, it, it's very difficult to do from an RCT perspective. So this is potentially where other evidence might be helpful, but it's also a case of um, when we're looking at, at um, patient evidence or evidence from the people who are coming to see us is incredibly helpful because you can be telling us that this is what's happening. This is when your pain gets worse. This is where your pain pain gets better. And we can use that with that incredibly zoomed in information um, or very specific information for, for specific parts of the condition to sort of put together things like a bit of a puzzle and sort of say, well, I'm looking at this now and it's looking like, you know, I don't have the puzzle box or the image, but I'm putting these pieces together and this sort of looks like a house or this sort of looks like a barn or it sort of looks like this. And so you can sort of then add more pieces to the puzzle, which is trial an error with with the patient, but obviously including the patient in those decision making process to make sure it fits. 
and and that's absolutely right and that that's what in the end happened for me and and literally that type of treatment changed my life mm. um it, it's as simple as that and and yeah there's there's something also about empowering the patient isn't there so it's as, as well as working with the patient, providing that patient with enough understanding that they can start to look at their lives um, and work out, you know, what helps and what doesn't help and and take ownership of, of the condition, but with the support of the clinician. It's like going on a journey together, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think the, the, the thing that I would add is that there's the potential, because this has happened before when we've, we've talked about, and when I say we, we as a profession, as a, as a global healthcare community, that we can look at some of these concepts as very specific to very specific conditions. Like we think about yourself with a more of a persistent pain condition. Um, but we see this, this utility, you know, could be used in, in many different cases. I'm thinking, I always go back to, to um, heel pain because it's the one we study the most but i think of the the runner who's 25 who's got heel pain and the the um uh, older sort of person um probably in their 50s or the 60s with heel pain is quite sedentary understanding that individual variation and what's happening and what's occurring in each person we know this evidence says this works for 50%, you know, full orthoses work for 50% of people, but we also look at other evidence that says, well, actually we've got similar results with exercises. We've got similar results with just stretching, or we've got similar results with shockwave, all these other sort of treatments. And I guess it's sort of when we're talking about empowering and self-management, or we're talking about involving the patient and in, in the decision-making process, when we've got evidence that's showing us similar sort of results on an RCT level, it sort of gives us that ability when we're putting that puzzle pieces together to say, you know, to give people the choice to discuss what's going to work with them, but also then take into account other factors, I think, like, for example, you're saying, you know, how do you manage day to day? Um, thinking about the runner, is it going to be much better to, uh, if they want to keep exercising, what keeps them exercising? That could be our focus. If we think about the person who's quite fairly sedentary, but works in a retail job, they need something to, to keep going. There's individual circumstances and in how we put our treatments in. A sedentary person might not be confident with exercises. They might not be, you know, comfortable with stretching, but, you know, we could start with a foot orthosis and then we learn from that causal failure if it doesn't help. And that provides more evidence for them that maybe they start to, to move more. We start to have to get them to do exercises. It all sort of, we can, we can use all of this information in not just cases, well, cases beyond, um, you know, people that are, are seen as complex or, or not responding or people with persistent conditions. But, but I would also say that, that you don't need to wait until people don't respond. So, so mm. you know, I needed to be treated as a unique patient um, from day one. So mm. it, it's... Um, with, with everything that we've said, with the evidence, with the understanding and, and everything else, um, rather than just waiting until I didn't respond um, and then, you know, maybe thinking about trying something different. It's it's a different approach, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Rani, Rani, have you got something to, to add? Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, that when Chris... Chris's story and Chris's response um, happened. 
it doesn't count as evidence. You would just say this is clinical anecdote, you know, so it would be dismissed as costly relevant evidence. But, but what is weird is that if she had been in a clinical study for those types of treatments that she received, then her anecdote would turn into evidence just because there are many of them and there's a control group. And, and to me, this is, how can this be? Because what happens to her happens to her costly anyway. And, and why shouldn't these types of anecdotes uh, be counted as clinical evidence? Hmm. So this idea that you need to have a kind of twin population or a randomized population where you get the same intervention and observe, this is, this is a particular way to see uh, how we can prioritize or how we can rank evidence. But, but evidence should be of the causal process that is going on. And if, if what we can see is just whether people got the intervention and whether or not they got better, we don't know if the intervention got them better, mm. if those are the only two things that we observed. So, so this, this human model where you observe the intervention and you observe the effect, it doesn't tell you anything about the causal story or causal process that goes on from A to B, but the clinical story will tell you a lot about it. Mm. And that's why we think that these qualitatively rich narratives and patient stories and looking at the patient context it provides causal evidence of which kind of things could uh, make something work better or counteract it working at all. So I, I'm just, I'm just really uh, frustrated that what happened, what happens to Chris and people who respond badly to the average best treatment. That it's very difficult to get that into the evidence hmm. pile. <laughs> Well, I'm thinking of there's a there's a whole series of of studies and systematic reviews on I think it was patellofemoral pain syndrome and foot orthoses, and I think exactly what you said occurred that you know you look at the the outcomes and the outcomes was a patient functional scale. It's a patient reported scale of how they think they're functioning, but it's 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 a um, it is a, a validated toolkit, but that you know that is still a patient saying i think i feel a lot better i'm finding things you know easier and there's some patients who are coming back and and saying i'm not finding things as as good i'm not finding things easy and we go okay that ticks in the box and because it's turned exactly like you said because it's turned into data all of a sudden it's it's relevant and it's all of a sudden it matters but when we look at our patients and we go and they go i'm not feeling better i'm feeling a lot better or you know you're yeah, you, you're not you're not always taking that on board. You're not always looking at that as as part of the the puzzle piece. You're saying, ah, oh, this person's just not 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 a responder, or they're they're not trying hard enough. Is a sort of classic one, or they they didn't follow the instructions exactly because this study showed that ninety percent of people, or seventy percent of people, or quite a high number of people got better. So the chances are this person didn't do it right. But I guess that that speaks to the issue of probability as well, because while something is 70, 80, 90% effective or effective for 70, 80, 90% of people, that still means that out of anyone that we could see, there's still a three out of 10 chance or a two out of 10 chance they won't respond. What do we do when that's the case? And, and I think that sort of also speaks to our issue of how we deal with failure as, as clinicians. 
we we view um, people, we view that, or the society has this idea that they come to us, we get fixed. But realistically, with the evidence that we have at the moment, you know, we are probably going to fail. You know, if if you if I see ten people with patellofemoral pain syndrome, you know, probably at least three of them are going to fail. Two people not respond as I as I expect, and. I have to be ready to deal with that, but it also means having a dialogue with the patient, keeping them involved, because then when we hit those failures, it's not a surprise. It's not a case of, oh, well, you failed. I'm going to move on to the next one, or that was a, a waste of time. Because as you said, Christine, you can learn from that as you went to each successive physiotherapist, you know, they could have learned from the previous failures rather than applying the same thing. So I guess what I'm hearing from from this discussion is, this is directed at you, Christine, is that as a patient, you want to be treated as an individual, not like you're seeing a robot dispensing the same plan over and over. And, and we've, we've sort of discussed how the, the pitfalls of that when we don't have the evidence that says this works 100% of the time. And, and so this is that strict guidelines approach. I'm thinking about how we could explain this with a bit of nuance. Um, to, to clinicians to help guide them in how we apply or how we understand some of these challenges and how we can learn from them. Um, one way I've, I've thought about it is evidence-based medicine or evidence-based healthcare can be like a map. It provides us with like a topographical view, potentially from a bird's eye, so a plane sort of flown over and given us this information. But what it's not telling us is exactly what's on the ground. So when we we arrive on with this map on the ground, it doesn't tell us um, about exactly what's happening on that day, what season it is, the recent rainfall, um, the time of day, what we can see, what we can't see, changes to the flora and fauna since since that original survey was done. But we also doesn't doesn't also tell us how we approach getting from A to B because it also depends upon. To, to really advance this, this metaphor doesn't tell us about what equipment that we have available, where we want to go, um, how we want to get there. So, do, you know, do we want to take the really steep but short path or do we want to take the, the really long windy path? So I'm thinking as sort of an idea, something to present to clinicians, do you think that metaphor um, or analogy really works um, for how we can be looking at evidence and applying it to patients yep I, I like that analogy i think it does work i think it describes a shared journey and i think that is hugely important um and i think it describes um what i would like to think of as a genuine partnership with both the clinician and the patient looking at the the terrain and as you say what what equipment is needed and whether to take the, the long route or the, the short route and, and so on. And, and yeah, I would say that my best healthcare occurred when I was treated within a strong patient-centered model of, of evidence-based practice. Um, my patient story was listened to and I can just see that your description of that, that map would, would fit into that. Um, and, and yeah, it, your RCT evidence or parts of, of that, that terrain, parts of that map, they need to be looked at and they need to be considered with the patients and, and the clinician. Um, and then 
a way forward navigated, um, you know, navigated together. And you're going to find that you may take one path and it may work, but it may not work. And if it doesn't work, then don't give up and don't just discharge them. Have a look for another path and see if that one works. And eventually you can empower your patient to continue that, that journey on, on their own. I think that, that needs to be the, the end goal, doesn't it? Um, but, but yes, I, I think that's really nice. And it puts the particular focus on the individual, which I think is good. Yeah, and I guess when I think about it a bit more, it sort of encompasses a lot of the, the things that we've discussed today, which is the fact that that you know, evidential pluralism, you know, RCTs provide so much information for the map, but it doesn't replace exactly what's happening on the ground. It highlights exactly that you said that you can go one pathway and you can find actually the river's burst its banks, or we can't cross here as we as the the map implied, and we fail and we have to we have to go back. Um, it, it implies that you know, it's because someone successfully made one journey one way doesn't mean it's going to be the same way for everyone. That that sort of average sort of pathway um so yeah. i think it, it really you know quite nicely wraps wraps things up i think for, for, yeah. for this discussion yeah and i think if you if you take a bird's eye view of that map then actually you can home in on on the patient but see the patient in their environment and in their life mm. um, so you can see the wider psychosocial aspects of of that person which I think is hugely important to take into, into account um, because if you don't, then, you know, is your treatment necessarily going to be the best treatment? I, I suspect not. So, well, yeah. I, think, I think the other thing is it, it, it highlights is that, you know, sometimes when we talk about patient empowerment or involving them in the treatment, the, there's a sort of a pushback from, from some clinicians or concern is like, well, are we handing over all the reins to our patients? What's our role It's kind of a threat? But realistically, when we look at it, we're still with a person with the experience. We've done many trips. We're the ones with a lot of the gear and the expertise on how to use it. We're the ones who are essentially guiding that that person um, through this sort of encounter or, or, you know, using this map and all this information where the patient's sort of there and is sort of saying, well, I don't have the expertise. I don't have the map. I don't always know how to read it. I haven't had experience using the map before, but that doesn't mean we have to exclude them. If anything, we're including them because they're the most important thing. You know, they're the ones who are, for this sort of analogy metaphor, um, they're the ones paying us to, to go on this journey and they should have a say uh, big time. But at the same time, is if you're trying to cross a, a river at a point that it can't be crossed, it's, it's our role to also say no as sort of preempting that sort of idea that that what a patient says always goes it's a case of well no you know it is still our role to push back and say if you want to get here these are still the pathways and this is how we can lead you and this is how we can take into account what you're saying as um as important because you're, you're telling us that you might not want to go this pathway for these reasons oh you want to go this pathway for these reasons we can still take those reasons on board and try and find alternatives not always um just saying no yeah, I, I agree. And and the other thing to remember is that, you know, as, as a patient, um, I'm only in your clinic for, for a minute portion of, of my life. And, you know, even if I'm on a six week episode of care, I may spend half an hour with you. 
but between that appointment and the next appointment, I've got to continue navigating that path on my own. So mm. I've got to be empowered to, to be able to navigate either in the short term, just between appointments, or better still in the long term when, when I no longer have that, that clinician support. Um, but, but yes, I, I agree. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good analogy. Awesome, thank you. <laughs> So I think that 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 uh, wraps up our, our first session where we're discussing the the challenges of evidence-based healthcare. What we're going to do in our next session, uh, where we bring everyone back, is is discuss the cause health solutions to these challenges that we've identified. So we're going to go through dispositionalism, what what exactly that is, and and how it presents us a new way that we can look at the evidence or combine a lot of the evidence. So we're saying evident in this interview, evidential pluralism, I'll get it right. We've got to take into account all these different bits of evidence, but exactly how we do that, exactly how we put that together, exactly how we understand variation and complexity, the dispositionalism approach can really help with that. So that will be that will be next time. Uh, but in, in the interim, I want to say thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. No, no yeah. problem. It was an absolute pleasure. I've, um, like, I've, like I said at the start, it's, it's, um, it's amazing to see people that or listen and, or be involved with people that have been quite uh, influential on how I, I see things and manage people in the clinic to, to come on for this chat. So, so no, thank you very much.